would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from, the Yagara and the Turrbal people, as the traditional custodians of Mianjin. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Just a heads up, the conversations in this podcast are definitely for adult ears only. There'll be explicit language, direct references to body parts, and very non-PG sexual activities. The chats are robust, so steer clear if you're a sensitive listener or if there are kids around. And I suppose if I speak more to queerness, it's a curiosity about connection and bodies that always says don't assume and don't assume a set way of being in the world or a set way of loving or a set way of experiencing desire. Let's really look at what gender equality means when it comes to one of the most basic core aspects of being human, which is our sexuality. You're listening to Erotic Stories, the podcast with me, Nadine Schmerle. This is a companion podcast to SBS's provocative new TV show, where we unpack the themes of each episode with real-life stories and unfiltered conversations. You can watch Erotic Stories now on SBS On Demand or jump right into these chats as I get our delightful guests on this episode, Maeve Marston and Dr. Melissa Kang, aka The Dolly Doctor, to open up about sex and sexuality, the fluids, the facts, and occasionally get a little risque. Maeve Marsden, thank you so much for being here today. Hello. Maeve Marsden is a doer of all the things, a writer, director, producer and performer, creator of Queer Stories, a podcast, stage event and cultural phenomenon. Maeve Marsden, hello. Thanks for having me. Do you mind if I refer to you as our specialist in all things queer? I mean, that feels like I'm just begging to be caught out as not a specialist. (laughs) I just feel like you have this really good insight and understanding of the community because you're so involved and you talk to so many queers at Queer Stories. And you're also a mum, aren't you? I am. I am. I'm a queer parent to a queer baby. I had queer mothers myself. So yeah, sure. Let's, let's decide that I'm a specialist. Yes. Okay. Queer specialist, Maeve Marsden today. No. How do you fit it all in? I don't. I failed dismally. <laughs> I constantly feel like I'm failing at something, but that's probably a discussion for my therapist, not a podcast. That's okay. I can bill you later. <laughs> so this kind of messiness of life, you know, this constant sense of mess is such a beautiful segue into our topic today, which is broadly about the messiness of sex and intimacy, like emotionally, physically, financially, sometimes when it fucks out, navigating bodies that are changing or just doing all these kinds of wacky things that bodies do, you know, all of those feelings and fears and baggage. The episode of Erotic Stories we're unpacking in this chat, Deluge, is full of them. I will just say quickly that this is a spoiler-free chat for the most part, but if you want to be in on the in-jokes, then head to SBS On Demand to catch the second episode, Deluge, on the sexy new SBS series, Erotic Stories, and then come back to us. Maeve, you have some erotic and some not-so-erotic stories for us, don't you? Tell, Tell me the story. Come on. So I, yeah, I was about 22. I'd been calling myself bisexual. I'd had a few girlfriends and sort of sexual relationships with women, all very high drama because I was an 18-year-old lesbian, so of course. 
Um, I do think drama is a function of lesbianism that doesn't always apply to heterosexuality in the same way, um, whether by virtue of kind of shared trauma of homophobia or just kind of conditioning to do emotion in a particular way. But, yeah, so I was 22 and I was like, this is getting ridiculous. I'm calling myself bisexual, but I haven't, I definitely haven't ever been in love with a man and I haven't done anything but kiss men and it was always kind of party passions and terrible university choices. And I was at Purple Sneakers, which Sydney, Sydney pals of the early aughts would know. Um, and I was very drunk. I like to say I had a Bacardi breezer in each paw because I had like my little mitts around my little soda Alco pops. And a guy <laughs> approached me who was called either Ben or Steve. Shout out to Ben or Steve. Same, same. <laughs> Um, and he was a commerce student, which I think is the greatest shame of it. So it's possible I'm still bisexual and it was just that I slept with a commerce student and that was the mistake that I made um, and turned me off men for life. And I just remember being like, it's now or never, take him home. But as I said, I'm a second-gen queer. My parents are lesbians and they were in the middle of a very messy lesbian divorce. Well, they weren't married. It was pre same-sex marriage, so lesbian separation after 28 years. And I was living with one of them sort of providing some support and so I took Ben or Steve home to the family home and had sort of perfunctory sex like I remember feeling like I was just going through the motions like I was doing the thing in order to have done the thing I was sober enough that when he said we could go again without another condom I was like definitely not sir (laughs) and so that was good because life would have been quite different and then the next morning I realised what I'd done and my mum was up and making like fresh orange juice in the kitchen and I was like, what have I done? And I ran out to her and she's like a wildly tactless, wonderful, warm, no boundaries kind of person. And I said, you have to be the best mother you've ever been to me. There was a man in my bed. I need you to drive him to the train station and then never mention it again. And to her credit, she did not. Like of all the things that we tease each other about as a family, she was like, I can do this. I can do this for my 22-year-old allegedly bisexual daughter. And I never saw Ben or Steve again and never slept with a commerce student again and never slept with a cishet man again. I've I've loved sex on binary babes. Like I don't think, I don't like to use lesbian without queer because I think that I like to always have an openness to my sexuality. Yeah. But definitely not the cishet masculinity. Do you think there's this different kind of like sensuality, a different sense of intimacy? I mean, the short answer to that is that that's an impossible question to answer because it's so different for the individuals who experience the sexuality. I mean, I think you can definitely say that culturally there are phenomena attached to kind of lesbianism that sets us apart by virtue of having two women who have been conditioned, you know, to behave in particular ways because of society and patriarchy, it changes the way a relationship functions. But as for the kind of the sexuality and the intimacy, I think that 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 varies so much person to person that you couldn't ever make a generalisation. No, I I agree. And in some parts, in this episode, it's about a woman who's ended a long-term lesbian relationship and is re-entering the world of dating. And we're kind of following her and she's negotiating this world after 20 years, exploring sex with a new person and all kinds of bodily fluids while being a little bit in love with her best friend, which is a very lesbian storyline. Is that a storyline that you often see in your life? I mean, yeah. I mean, funnily enough, when you said it's called The Deluge, um, 
friends and I have always used Akhemwale Deluge, that often becomes the flood, um, to be the period in your life where suddenly you're being desired in a particular way. And when sort of said that you'd have like particular phases where you have a flood and suddenly you're being flirted with and there's something you're putting out in the world that says, here I am and I'm up for it. And I think a flood often happens after a relationship. Like it's often that you've got this like fresh lease on life and you're coming back out into the world and people sniff it on you. And so you get a flood, whether that's a literal flood of bodily fluids or just this kind of energy. Can I ask you about bodily fluids? Sure. How do you feel about them? I mean, which ones? Like in regards to sex and sexuality. So, you know. I'm not into like golden showers, if that's what you No. Mean. That's okay, my judgment, that's but it's not for me. Sure. As for all the fluids that just keep things moving. Yeah. Great. Is it something that's talked about comfortably in the queer community? Like can you sit down at brunch and be like, I had a squirter? Or yeah. And I mean, again, like I'm talking to my queer community, but within my friends, this is a constant. I mean, lots of my friends work in as well in like sex education and it's totally a free for all. Sometimes we do sit down to a meal and realize that the table next to us might not want to hear our debate about whether or not squirting is we, <laughs> which I can't answer that question. Do we have an answer? No, but my friend who insists it isn't, well, my, I should say my ex-girlfriend who insists that it isn't we, will consistently be annoyed to this day because I will just text her out of the blue and be like, I think it's we. And she's like, it's not, it's not. And I just wait and troll her about it. As a squirter, I don't care. I'm no, very who cares? If it is, well, sure. there you go. Um, I'm not a squirter. I mean, maybe there's still time. Yeah, it's early days. Haven't been to date. No. So it happened for me after I had a baby. Oh, well, I've had yeah. already, but that hasn't changed. Right. So I was wondering, did did your um, – so I, I was talking to Dolly Doctor yesterday, Dr. Melissa Kang, which is actually going to be on after this. We were talking about how sexuality changes after you become a parent, after you become a mother or a father, and the effect that that has on your relationships, on your interpersonal bodily relationship, your relationship with your genitals and everything – did you find that it changed at all when you became a parent? Yeah, look, I mean, this is probably going to be a hard pivot to not very cheerful content. Yeah. Prior to having my child, I had three quite traumatic miscarriages. So actually they had more of an impact, I would say, on my sexuality in lots of ways, not sexuality in terms of identity, but sort of sexuality in terms of the way I related to my body than having a baby, the process of IVF and what that does to the way you relate to your body. Um, and having, you know, constant internal ultrasounds and your body all be tied up in this kind of feeling of success and failure and it being a shared project with your partner. Like I'm kind of rambling. I haven't spoken about this that much so that I don't have like a clear, <laughs> I don't have a kind of set pattern for talking about this. Yeah. So personal. But that really did change my relationship to my body for a while. And then when I had my kid, I had a lot of problems with breastfeeding pain, which again meant that my body was this site of like suffering. So it's taken a couple of years, I would say, to reconnect to my body. And that's involved time and effort with my partner and patients and kind of reconsidering our dynamic physically. It's taken a lot of like doing exercise. I live in the Blue Mountains now and bushwalking and kind of feeling strong again. It's taken having the kid and sort of that healing some of the trauma of loss and the affection of like a child is both like takes away some of your sexuality for a while because it's so intimate, at least it did for me, 
Well, you feel like you don't own your body sometimes, don't you? You don't own your body, but also you're having this like deeply intimate, huge love that isn't sexual, but is still physically intimate in a way that other relationships aren't, as you'd know. But then there's really beautiful things that have come out of that. Like my kid loves squishing my arm fat and loves like playing my belly like it's a waterbed. And so stuff around being fat has weirdly gotten better because this body is being like loved in this really sweet, open way. So I'm kind of, I mean, I'm rambling all over this. I think because my kid's only two, I'm still learning what parenthood is going to do to my relationship, to my body and sex. No, these are things we don't talk about. And, um, you know, your relationship with your child is one thing and your relationship with your sexuality is another, but they impact each other in such a way. And then that, you know, changes how we feel about ourselves as well. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting and hard thing to talk about around children and the impact on your sexuality being in a queer relationship that I feel like the conversations can be had in a really like open and exciting way. And I'm really lucky to be able to talk about it with friends as well. And, and funnily enough, often it's talking to friends who don't have kids where I have the most kind of dynamic and interesting conversations about it because people aren't in any kind of contest of who gets to define it. And those friends are really, especially queer friends are really curious. Curious. The curiosity is lovely. Yeah. And, and curious about, I mean, I think, you know, we were talking earlier about what makes lesbianism different to heterosexuality. And I suppose if I speak more to queerness, it's a curiosity about connection and bodies that always says don't assume and don't assume a set way of being in the world or a set way of loving or a set way of experiencing desire or experiencing family. And so that's why I feel really lucky that in both in my relationship and in my community, all these things we can keep like teasing apart and analysing and not having an assumption of what makes a mother or what makes a father or a parent or a familial structure. And that's what's kind of exciting to me more than like what we do with our bits. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so it's very lovely to be able to have these beautiful conversations with friends who are queer or who are just open to having these conversations. Yeah. Have you had queer friends who freak out about what? Yeah, I've had sexual partners who are much more like prudish feels so judgmental. So yeah. For me, I'm always like, there's nothing that someone could bring up as an idea sexually that I'd be really affronted by. There's things that I'd just be like, hey, that's not for me. Like, I'm definitely not up for any kind of scat play. No. And I did have a partner who was into golden showers and I just was like, it's not for me. I'm sorry, you know, to disappoint you, you can do it with your next partner. And so there's things that I'm just like not keen on. Mm. I'm not into a lot of pain. And, And even with like period sex, I'm like, fine with it being around, but it's not like a thing that I'm like, yes, like paint my body with period blood in the full moon. Like it's not, yeah, a, not. It's not a desire. Um, but I just don't have a lot of hang-ups if people want to express to me desires they have. And I'm always like, well, how can we get around this and provide you with something you need, even if it's not something I want? So that's kind of my general attitude to sex. So, yeah, I've had partners who are less into being as free, I guess, with desire and discussion of it, but those relationships ended up not being as fulfilling as ones where that wasn't the case. Like I really like a a freedom to at least communicate about sex because it's such a weird thing we do with our bodies and our minds. Like we put our beards in each other's beards and we like have all these fantasies that are so impacted by 
society and culture and maybe a movie we saw when we were 12 or, you know, like, and all of these things build this kind of rich way of connecting to someone we care about or are attracted to. And I have always found it just endlessly kind of fascinating and worthy of discussion. And I don't have a lot of boundaries like that. In fact, I would say I've had more partners who have a problem with how freely I will discuss my sex life with my like various friends and ex-partners. Have people had problems with yeah. your openness? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Because I just don't have a lot of, like I end up talking to, I mean, I'm talking to you about it. Yeah, and also right. like I have to remind myself to kind of keep myself in check in some settings. But um, but yeah, and some partners are like, hey, that's my thing. <laughs> so speaking of partners and my thing and this, in this episode the character kind of feels like um, full of sexual prowess yeah. because they can make their partner squirt. You know, there's this moment where she's like, yes, I did it. Like, you know, uh, is that a real thing? Has any partner ever been like, you know, there's that maverick high five moment? Um, So I had a partner who I really adored and we're still very, very good mates. And she often takes a while with a new partner to orgasm. And so we'd been seeing each other like a month or two and she hadn't. And I was like really feeling down on myself. And she was like, it always takes this long. Just takes time for me to relax. I'd be intimate. Like it always takes this long. And I was like, no, I'm terrible. So this was in my 20s and I was like, felt like a failure. And she still laughs that the first time I finally made her orgasm, instead of like coming to like intimately kiss her, I like leapt off her body and like cheered myself and like did like, you know, when you put your fists above your head, like yeah. you won a squatting game. And she was just like, babe, <laughs> like, <laughs> finally, like it was my success instead of her pleasure. And she still thinks that was quite an outrageous moment. Um, if funny, like she didn't break out with me. She obviously thought it was charming. No, that's beautiful. And yeah, like I have moments like that. Like it's not, it's not like, um, I'm not a stud. Like it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not a regular experience. So for all that I'm like free in the way I talk about sexuality, I haven't had like thousands of sexual partners. I don't tend to have one night stands. It takes, it's much more likely that I would sleep with my friends, like, or people I've gotten to know or like dated um, than just having hookups. Cause I'm not that confident about myself as like a desirable object. So yeah, I was going to ask crushes on straight friends. You know, we, we all had that Sophie B Hawkins moment. Damn. I wish you were my lover kind of, you know. I think the phenomenon of the like yearning lesbian friendship is iconic and it is such a thing because especially I think a lot of us came of age in high school where we had these like yearnings for our friends and it took time to even understand them as sexual. Like my best friend when I was maybe eight or nine, I just loved her so much. And like straight girls can have these like big intimate friendships but there's this slight like romantic edge to a lesbian yearning friendship. And I think the adult version of that are our kind of flirtatious friendships. And sometimes it's really hard to know where the line is in those because we operate in these communities where so often nearly everyone is a possibility and and there's a playfulness and, as you say, a real openness to talking about sex so you often know what your friends are into. So, of course, it's easy at a certain point to be like, Oh, really? <laughs> Share that interest, do we? Um, and so I think that that is something that, I mean, you know, like I'd, I don't know the statistics on queers and polyamory versus the straights and polyamory, but I think, you know, like there's often a discussion at least in openness about openness in queer relationships in part because of that in part because of the kind of flexibility of the boundaries between friendship and desire. Have you ever had straight people crushing on you? You know, like someone who's straight or, 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 you know, believes they're straight and then they're like, 
Maeve, I think I've got feelings for you. No, I think that I've had a few women or friends who were straight for whom I was a consideration. Like there was a playfulness or a physical intimacy that went beyond whether it was kissing or kind of sleeping in the same bed or having like a particular kind of intimacy that made them feel good. But it never turned into them being like, and I'm bisexual. Like it would always be this kind of the first soul of possibility, I think, for them rather than something that, and maybe if I'd like been more forward or tried to seal the deal instead of just like privately yearning, um, <laughs> more would have happened. But if back then I was much less confident. I mean, I'm not that confident now, but slightly more. Um, so no, I am afraid I have not turned legions of straight women, um, much as we like to recruit. Um, yeah, we do. We do. We do. One to 10 is not enough. No, no. Um, I think that's a live number anyway. It's got, um, oh, I think it is now. No one under 25 is like everyone under 25 is bisexual. Everyone. This is my I don't know a single, it sounds silly, but I really don't know any straights. And if they are, they're like, they feel a bit guilty about it. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Really, they wish, like, you know. Oh, no, it was um, Navat Zazin, the writer, said that they do schools talks and someone came up to them and they asked this person their pronouns and they said, oh, just she, her, sorry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, sweet. It's like, it's all right. You're allowed to be sis, baby. It's okay, yeah, sweet no <laughs> Oh, that's so cute. So cute. Our next guest is an author, an academic, and a practicing medical doctor for marginalised young people. She's the longest serving expert for the popular column, Dolly Doctor, the source of truth for generations of young people navigating sexuality through adolescence. She recently published Welcome to Sex with co-author Yumi Steins, a no silly questions guide to sexuality. Who better to talk to about the messiness of sex? Welcome Dr. Melissa Kang. Thanks so much for having me, Nadine. It's very exciting for me to be talking to the longest serving Dolly Doctor. I'm sure you hear it every time. What drives you to work in this space? If I'm going to be psychoanalytic about it, I think it goes back to my own adolescence. And I also think that that's the reason so many people, especially women of my age, my generation and younger as well, can relate to that column. When I was a teenager, I got no sex education at all, not anything. Well, perhaps one talk in year six, which my mother had to take me to, but she actually couldn't bring herself to discuss it afterwards. And that was it. That's all I got. As I progressed through high school and became interested in romance and sexuality, and I had basically no information at all, only what my friends would talk about. And we didn't know much, to be honest, as a group. We were kind of the nerdy bunch. And I also found that when I was a young adult and I was starting to get into relationships that I got a lot of really interesting double messages, particularly at home. So I had a father to whom I was very close, who had always told me I could do whatever I liked. I had the capability and all the resources I needed to kind of, you know, do what I like. The world was my oyster. And yet when it came to things like dating and boys and boyfriends and relationships, I got a very different message. And the main thing there was that it was completely different from my brother, to whom I was also very close. And I think it was that realisation, that moment of, ah, okay, it's different if you're a woman or a girl. 
I think that's probably what started this journey for me. It was really the serendipitous falling into Dolly Doctor when I had already been a doctor for a few years that suddenly changed my life. I didn't realise how much it would change my life. But I think it was the longevity, it was the, I guess, almost like this anonymous relationship you develop with an adolescent audience and listening to, reading all their questions and trying to answer them as best I could, that took me back to my adolescence. So really it was that longevity of 23 years that kept me young, I think kept me in touch in some way, and I continued obviously to do clinical work and I still do with young people. Did you realise the impact that you were having? You knew absolutely the not. effect that you were having? No, not at all. Really? Not at all. And in fact, yeah. I, I never wanted to be in the media and I was very happy being semi-anonymous in the column. So I'm terribly humbled really and flattered that people are saying, oh, thank you for all that you taught me. I, I feel like it wasn't really just me and it certainly wasn't. There were editors and staff of Dolly who really wanted to make sure that young women got the information that they were seeking that they couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah, look, it was huge. I was a young woman of colour when Dolly came out and from a very traditional Arab family, so sex and sexuality was never discussed and suddenly here was a very clear graphic guide of where my clitoris is, what it is, what's going on with my body. So thank you to you and the team for what, you know, I think really opened the world up for so many of us. Melissa, have the questions that you've been asked changed across time? Like, do you think that the questions nowadays are more inverted commas out there or different? Have you seen a change in the kind of discussions that we're having now? Yes and no. Over that 23-year period, the most common questions, and I did do some analysis years ago now, but I did a couple of analyses at different time points. And when we looked at the topics or the themes they didn't change. So the predominant questions were about what was happening to their bodies and along with that, some of the sensations and some of the emotions that accompanied that. So the most common questions were about physical changes, breast development, stretch marks, gaining weight, pimples, oily hair, body hair, periods, of course, and prior to the first period, vaginal secretions. That was a really common question, a lot of alarm and anxiety about that. Questions around sex and relationships were also substantial in number. So sexual practices, for example. And just to, as you referred to the recent book that I co-published with Yumi, the questions about sexual practices particularly, but really the whole book, was based on the sorts of questions that came through Dolly, as well as what I've seen in my clinical practice and as well as interviewing young people for the book as well. So these were the sorts of topics I was saying, we need to know about this and if we look it up on the internet, we don't know what we're going to find. Yeah. So have you ever been surprised by a question? Let me think about that. <laughs> I'm sure I have. Sure. I mean, you know, people asking about things that might be taboo, people asking about bodily functions, golden showers or, you know, um, period sex, messy sex, things like that. I think most of it didn't surprise me, although maybe it did, but I guess <laughs> that there were questions about is it okay to have sex when you're on your period? And my answers would be around, yes, it's fine. You know, there's no reason that you can't from a sort of 
health and safety point of view, except for the usual caveats around protection against STIs and pregnancy. So just just a bit of a spiel on that, but talking about how it is more messy and you might want to put a towel underneath you. It's something, yeah, just, I guess, sort of simple messages about hygiene and staining and those kinds of things, which were often what they were asking about anyway. In terms of the questions about sexual practices, Look, not really. I mean, they were the sorts of questions that are in the book, fingering, oral sex, anal sex, not so much anal sex because it's really only a behaviour that, because of pornography, I think, has become Mm. more current and more increased in terms of the number of young people participating in anal sex, heterosexual couples, I mean. But there were occasional questions about that. Girl-on-girl sex was not an uncommon question, Yeah. So that's another question. How is the increased accessibility of pornography impacting how people relate to their sexuality? Have you seen a change? You know, as porn becomes more accessible, as we kind of see, you know, I remember back when I was trying to download porn in in the early 2000s, it would take six minutes to get one photo. And nowadays, you know, click of a finger, you get to watch whatever you want. Have you seen a difference actually you know, the accessibility of affecting it? Certainly the one question that wasn't there when I started and then was there maybe about 10 to 15 years into my tenure was about genitalia, so pubic hair, vulvas and labia or the vaginal lips. And that was one of the earliest indications for me that this was probably an impact of looking at porn online or access to porn, which was online predominantly, So whereas there had never been a single question about how do I remove my pubic hair, suddenly there wasn't a flood of them, but there were certainly regular questions and people with vulvas wanting to know they either had removed their pubic hair and were experiencing rashes and things or they wanted to know how to do it or how much to do it or how much it would cost, those sorts of questions. And then once they had removed their pubic hair, they were noticing that their genitalia didn't look like what they might be seeing on porn. Now, they didn't necessarily disclose that, I've seen this on porn and I don't look the same, but that was the assumption that we made. And it was consistent with what other researchers around the world were noticing about young people's access to pornography and the particularly young women, girls, people with vulvas removing their pubic hair. That's amazing. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, So our podcast is a companion piece to a TV series called Erotic Stories. And one of the episode of Erotic Stories that we're actually talking about this week is The Deluge, it's called. And one of the characters experiences, I guess, what we call squirting. And this is a term that gets thrown around a bit and it almost has a kind of mythology about it. Can you tell us what it is? Even in the most recent literature that I've read, it's still a bit controversial. And what squirting refers to in most of the literature, including some of the medical papers that I've read, is basically that the fluid that comes out of squirting is urine and that it probably comes from the bladder. And it happens for some people who have a vagina when they orgasm. And it's described in some papers as being involuntary, it just happens. And in others, it's described as, no, it's something that you can practice, you can make an art of it and and it happens. It's different from vaginal ejaculation or female ejaculation, which is... So it is different. It depends which papers you read. Right. I think, though, that the the volume of fluid that can come out in squirters is 
more likely to be coming from the bladder, given that the ejaculation, which is sort of the squirting of slightly thicker fluid from the skein's glands, which are glands near the urethra, which is where the urine comes out, which is why it's a bit confusing and hard to tell, unlikely to be such a large volume of fluid. So look, I've not done these. I'm going by what I've read in the scientific literature, and it does seem to be that they are two separate things. I'm one of them, just for full disclosure, you know, uh, for comfort of listeners. It's one of those things that I guess isn't discussed quite often. So I kind of like to put that out there to make people comfortable. I think that's important because I think for women and people with vulvas, there is all sorts of taboo, negative attachments, emotional attachments to these very hopefully wonderful bodily functions, things that our bodies yeah, can do no for no complaints. Us. Exactly. And yeah. so, again, you know, some studies have shown that there are all sorts of, a whole range, diversity of meanings and responses to people who squirt from shame and secrecy and not wanting to talk about it and feeling embarrassed when they're with a partner right through to it's wonderful, everyone loves it, I'm into it, or at the very least, it's fine, it's just me and I'm cool with it. Yeah, so certainly that was my curve. Uh, Great. I've come back to just being cool with it, but, you know, um, we don't see a lot of Arab women in the media talking about squirting. Mm -hmm. So why do you think people are so awkward around these topics? Why do you think it's so hard for people to talk about it? Sex is an incredibly strange thing. It's, (laughs) It's the most natural, almost universal thing in the world for humans And yet we have such layer upon layer of different cultural meanings attached to it that are extremely gendered in just about every society. And I think for women or people who are not cisgender men, at least, cisgender heterosexual men, everyone else experiences varying degrees of shame, stigma, ridicule, judgment, about their sexuality. And because women are kind of half the population, it's a huge part of the human race that I think is brought up to feel somehow in some way that it's not right, (laughs) that it's not quite okay to celebrate your sexuality, whatever it is, and to celebrate your body, whatever that looks like and however it performs or behaves. When I say that, I mean, I think that's a function of patriarchy and power and economics and all sorts of things, ways of controlling parts of the population in order to progress or succeed or gain power. I think that one of the solutions, though, is to try and break down very, I guess, stereotypical masculine stereotypes for boys and men as well. In my work as a doctor and also as just a person who has young men in their life for different reasons, you know, children, relatives, children of friends and so on. I have seen boys and young men really suffer from patriarchy and they carry some of those hang-ups through to adulthood and to their adult relationships as well. So it's not about blaming and shaming the other half of the population. It's really about let's figure this out together and let's really look at what gender equality means when it comes to one of the most basic core aspects of being human, which is our sexuality. 
So you think breaking down that cornerstone of shame and understanding and education is the key principle? I think it's one of the most important ways to start to address it. It's got to start with this sort of combination of knowledge and attitudes. And it's very hard. It's easier to change knowledge. We can sort of teach facts and teach information, for example, which is what I suppose Dolly Doctor functioned as, which was to give facts about the body and facts about bodily functions and I guess normalising the diversity of those amongst young people. It's harder to change attitudes and it's been decades of those of us who are trying to give young people access to comprehensive sex education know that it needs to start really young in fact. We need to first of all I think as adults and parents and carers deal with our own hang-ups, our own experiences and I'm not immune to that myself, given my my own family that I grew up in. But I guess it's either one family, one person at a time, or one group at a time, or one society at a time that will gradually start to change that. What are the most significant changes you've seen? Well, I think, first of all, we're much more accepting of young people having a sex life in general. There's still a lot of shame and stigma attached to it, but as a society, Certainly, when I think about the medical profession, there's a lot more teaching of medical students and doctors out there in the field about what I'm going to call typical or average or normal sexual interests and behaviours of teenagers. used to be something that was very, you shouldn't be doing this. And it still is in many pockets, but overall, we've certainly seen amongst young people, and it is always the younger generations that change the world, but a much more widespread acceptance of sexual diversity. And we're seeing right now much more acceptance of gender diversity, although I absolutely acknowledge that they're a really marginalised group of young people who are experiencing really poor mental health as a result of discrimination. But I think amongst many of the young people that I meet on the street and see in my work, generally there's a lot of acceptance and understanding Whilst we've seen a lot of change and a lot of acceptance, that we also saw a lot of controversy around the book that you wrote with Yumi Steins about an instructional guide essentially for young people about their bodies and sexuality. Could you have written that book 20 years ago? I mean, you could have, obviously. Would it have been accepted as a book? Do you think it would have, how would it have been different writing that book 20 years ago? I've been talking to colleagues about that very question And there's a part of me that thinks it would have been more acceptable 20 years ago. Really? I feel as though there was almost less censorship of the information that adolescents and young people were asking about. I think most of what's in the book would have been quite, well, it it is, you know, it's not particularly controversial. It's, It's about messages young people get about sex. What, how do we define sex? What do we mean by that? The section on identities and labels and, you know, that was certainly, I don't think, a controversial topic 20 years ago necessarily. Obviously at a societal and structural level and the laws and so on, it was less acceptable. But I think that it was a very common question from Dolly Doctor readers and it was in the magazine a lot too, talking about sexual diversity and girl-on-girl sex and things like that. What's happened is that we know young people have access to so much more information now and that they do have access to pornography. So this sort of resistance and pushback saying we've got to stop this tide 
So we're going to say no to everything (laughs) rather than thinking it through and going, well, actually, if we give information that's age appropriate and told in a very hopefully kind of almost clinical way. Yeah. And this episode in particular kind of deals with women who are my age, I'm 43. And, you know, in the episode, there's a little bit of medical trauma. There's a little bit of anxiety and shame about performance and relationships and bodily fluids. You know, giving advice to young people is one thing, and it's generally quite just laying it out on the table. But as we get a little bit older, we know the facts, you know, a lot of the time. Do you have any advice for people in that period of their life where they're wanting to do new things, wanting to kind of break those things, but still carry the anxiety and shame that they had in childhood? It's so variable. I mean, I think it can be deep trauma without something traumatic having happened, but you carry those attitudes with you from birth, really. And now you're in sort of coming towards middle age or in middle age with decades of shame attached to your sexuality. The episode which I've watched, The Deluge, I thought was kind of, well, it was lots of things, but it was, you know, it was really, again, a lovely, I thought, celebration of the actual sex itself. You know, it had interesting and complex themes in some ways, but I really loved the celebration of the enjoyment of sex. And I like to think that that's what it should be like (laughs) for people that want to do it. Perhaps just what we need is to be really comfortable with what our bodies are, what they can do, what they can't do, and the sensations and the pleasurable feelings that are attached to our bodies, to just at least try to celebrate that as much as we can. It's very gendered. And I think for particularly women in their 40s and as they approach 50, and I'm happy to say this from a personal perspective as well, that there is this description of how you feel suddenly invisible. And it's very, very hard to get out of that. Yeah, to to sort of realise that your body's changed and you're you're no longer, not that I wanted to be, but you're no longer going to be someone that some, you know, someone you might be attracted to finds attractive, I guess. And I hope that is something that will change as well, if we can move forward and really learn to celebrate, particularly women and female sexuality. Thank you so much. I mean, I think that's the the perfect statement. I certainly, you know, identify with what you're saying about as we get older, I'm getting to the point now where I'm an auntie to, you know, the youth in my community. I'm no longer the youth. And it's this really funny stage where we're seeing that change and that transition. Perimenopause is coming on, you know, I'm getting the hot flushes and everything is different. I'm starting to even question my body again, which is something that we're not told is going to happen. Yeah. I think that, you know, we talk about how we're now perhaps less, it's part of the journey for all of us in one respect, like all the massive hormone and other physical changes that happen to the body and how that affects your sex life as well. And how you feel about yourself is huge. We need just to talk about it. Thank you so much, Dr. Melissa Kang, for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Nadine, and thank you for all that you're doing to also have these conversations about women and sex and sexuality. It's fantastic. Oh, my God. Dolly Doctor just said nice things about me talking about sex. (laughs) You've been listening to Erotic Stories, the podcast, where we unpack the themes from the Sensual SBS series, now streaming on SBS On Demand. I'm Nadine Schmerley. For more conversations about all things erotic, 
visit sbs.com.au slash erotic stories podcast on the SBS audio app or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.